Bob Murphy Show, episode 148. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today we are joined again by Donnie Gebert, one of the few people who has now had a second appearance on the podcast. So I originally had Donnie on back in episode 42. That was titled Former Military Intelligence Sergeant. Donnie Geppert explains that a direct republic is now possible. And so what we did at the time was, it was a, it was a long one. It was a three-hour interview where he uh, drove up to Texas Tech, where I was at the time, and hung out for three hours while we recorded. And you may remember... Gebert had his plan for what he called automating Congress. And it was far deeper than perhaps that title suggests, but that was the way that I, I liked that way he explained it or tried to, to capture people to get normal people interested in what he was talking about. And now Donnie's back. He has a new book coming out and it's called The Art of War 2020. And uh, let me just say, I don't endorse everything Donnie says. And he knows that I said this is back at the time. When I met him, because I encountered some unusual characters in my line of work, and, uh, and, and Donnie, I was like, you know, this guy is either really onto something or he's crazy, or maybe both. And I did not want to be the one to not let all of you good folks hear his ideas. I didn't want to make that call. I was like, you know what, I'm going to pass this through the Murphy sieve and uh, let you folks decide. So when he was here on episode 42, I got the feedback. Some of you thought he was one of the most amazing guests you've ever heard on a podcast. And others of you did not think so highly of the conversation. So I leave it up to you. Without further ado, here is my discussion with Donnie Gebert. Well, Donnie, welcome back to the Bob Murphy Show. Hello, Bob. Congratulations on the new baby. Oh, thank I you. enjoy babies. <laughs> thank you. Congratulations on the new book. I enjoy books. Um, so... Yes. The official topic for today is you've got this book that's dropping, if we've timed this correctly, uh, to be this episode is coming out right when your your book is is launching officially, and it's called The Art of War 2020. So what what's going on in this book? I mean, obviously, I've, I've looked through it, and I'm going to ask you specific things, but at this point, you know, what, what is it something that's narrowly about military strategy, or is it more like I've learned lessons and this helps you in general, that kind of thing? It's definitely the latter. Uh, Sun Tzu is a dry, descriptive, here's the mechanics of how you go to war. It's a great book. Everyone has things to learn from it. However, it is written in a time without electricity. And it is really about, like, there's no ideology in the art of war. It's really just how do you describe the process and engage in the task. And Sun Tzu lays it out. And I... I'd like to call it the the least amount of words possible. It's it, it almost requires some elaboration as it lies. Mm -hmm. Then there's modern day. 
There were, you know, there were no TVs, there were no artillery, there were no aircraft. So when you start adding all of these strange mechanics, I mean, one can even say that warfare, conventional warfare in tanks and aircraft is, is almost the most obvious and boring type. I don't want to say, you know, I, I'm not advocate. I don't advocate for war really in any sense because it's always inefficient. So when we get down to what is this book, it's fundamentally, it's pretty abstract. And you have to take these concepts and you have to apply them to three-dimensional space. The concept of zero in three-dimensional space is nothing. It's, I have no food and I have no ammo. I have the same nothing in both instances. What, what, do, what does the, the concept of zero applied to food and the concept of zero applied to ammo have in common? Everything and nothing. That's the paradox. So you start getting, you work through the concept of zero. And then what is a paradox? A lot of times it's not real. And if it's not real, it's dialectic. If you have a real paradox, it's because there's nothing there. You're, I'm accurately describing the concept of zero. Comparing two things by nothing is easy. They, they, you don't have any. So this is where Sun Tzu says you need food and ammo. This is where I say, if you don't understand where your food and ammo come from on a perpetual basis, then you will lose track of your supply chain. And any, any, any way that you lose your track in the Rube Goldberg machine of your supply line, your stuff is gone. Your ammo is gone. Your, your food is gone. Your money is gone. And the Federal Reserve basically wages war on everyone with inflation and deflation and wonky money mechanics. And the minute they have to do ledgers, where do we all do? We get ready to cancel the system. So this book is really kind of abstract. Like the chapter one is analyst 101. It was one of my jobs and I had to kind of work through how do I take two things, put them together. And, uh, you know, a plus a and B are two different systems. When we overlap them, we have a Venn diagram. So now we have a B and C and we have to make sure that they're articulated properly or we did it wrong. So there's a law. It's, it's a very, it's kind of abstract. I asked, uh, I asked Buck Johnson from death to tyrants. I said, is this too abstract? He said, not nah, for these days. Mm -hmm. So because COVID is wonky and psychological warfare is a thing, then abstract concepts applied to war is not that far fetched. Okay, so in your description there, I think dovetails with what the book is and, and, and what will help the, the listeners decide, like, is this something I want to look through? Because you're right. It's, it's certainly not in chapter one talking about how do you blockade an island nation or something. <laughs> like, it's, it starts talking about, like, the nature of argumentation or starts talking about Venn diagrams. And then you go into the nature of argumentation and you've got, like, a yin and yang diagram going on here. And so I guess why don't we start there? Why is it that if you're talking to someone about, okay, you're basically going to update the art of war for 2020 and you spend so much time in the beginning, just laying out the foundations of this is what happens when you have a, an honest argument with somebody, you know, that sort of thing. Like you, you, you talk a lot about communication. So what, what's, why is that there? Uh, so I, I think, well, the, the best, I, let's, let's look at this in, in light of the current voting debacle. We can have an argument about how voting happens. We can have an argument about the, the abstracts about it. But those are two separate arguments. 
One is the logistical supply train that will allow the votes to go to, you know, be counted in a particular way. They will be pro procured in a certain way. And all of those, you know, call them parliamentary procedure around your voting. Then there's the philosophy of what you're going to do. Those don't really have a Venn diagram. You're going to perform something in three-dimensional space. You're going to add a philosophy to it. That's how most people operate. I do it inverted. I pick a mechanic and I ask myself, what philosophy does this mechanic bring about? So when I'm looking at a mass grave, I'm not moralizing about it. I'm just saying, I have 50 rounds. I have 25 people. I could put these 25 people in a grave and they don't show up tomorrow. That's not moralizing. It's a solution. And this is where you end up in politics because libertarians primarily, when there's a violent pragmatist, and there's a libertarian and the violent pragmatist has a method that will function. And the libertarian says, let's do the same thing without violence. It's now the libertarians kind of, they now must become an entrepreneur and say, I'm not going to moralize about the process. I need to find a solution to this problem without a mass grave. So when you start getting into where's the argumentation, argumentation is exactly like a supply line. The minute you lose that handoff, you don't get your food, you don't get your ammo, you don't get your point across. And most people get lost in it. Well, because politics is war by other means, the intellectual supply train is what's being lost now. And when that happens, it is a de facto state of psychological warfare. You are now somewhat askew and your, your, your end state may not be met because you've got 182 pieces here and, and only five of them are wonky, but any one of those five prevents that Rube Goldberg machine from happening. So when you start philosophizing, you're really not looking at enterprise environment factors. You're trying, uh, how's it go? Anyone who can, dis, uh, anyone who thinks they can argue with the nature of a problem is a real philosopher, okay? You have to fix the nature of a problem. You can't talk at it. And that is kind of how politics works. Joe Biden says, I, I know how to be the socialist warlord for America, vote for me. But he can't call Maduro and say, hey, man, you seem to be having a problem with our socialist experiment down there. Why don't you let me help you out? And that's because Bernie Sanders doesn't know how to fix Venezuela. Or more importantly, I think he does. And he knows that it's a bottomless pit. He knows it's beyond redemption. He just stands... Bernie's been living in a world for a long time where, you know, Colombia or Venezuela or any other place that gets way too into the socialist hole blows up. He he can kind of pretend that doesn't exist for 40 years. Now the Internet is making all of these social ex experiments. They're, they're demonstrated as failure. They they abuse monetary mechanics in the name of social good. And every time you abuse the mechanics, you get predators because then the philosophy has a mechanic of predation, whether or not you think a pre then we look for honest people, right? The argument is we have the mechanics of a predator, but we're looking for angels to fill the slots. And then when you, someone says we have to fix the system, they say, well, you need enough votes to do that. That's not how you fix the system. You, again, you're applying a philosophical method to how the system is supposed to be fixed. You're not a military scientist describing how this portion should be destroyed and rebuilt. So that's kind of where I get into. If you want to understand why is argumentation important, because if you don't understand how your supply train works, you're going to lose it. And you're not even and then you're just, you know, now you're a failing business.
But if you can't do it in an argument, you shouldn't be given any VC money ever because your business is probably going to, if you can't follow this in your head, wait till you have to try and track down missing pieces that come from another zip code. So you really have to be on top of your mental game and understand where all those pieces, think of it, every operation is like a gymnasium filled with dominoes or a Rube Goldberg machine. It has to function or it doesn't. And your intent is irrelevant to whether or not that last domino falls. It's your capabilities, your planning, and your execution. And any place that your capabilities can be misrepresented or your execution is off, doesn't matter. You lose any one of the 180 steps and you lose one, you lose. And that's the voters are put there on purpose. So as you go through this, everyone's saying we need to fix the logistics of voting. And I'm saying, no, you don't. I don't care who you are. You are not correct. Voting does not function if you're trying to not create a minority. You're better off with two buckets and Trump and Biden have buckets than you are to have a vote and say Trump or Biden get one bucket. It's philosophy being applied to the problem, not, you know, military science. Okay. Um, I hope that answers. Well, it's, <laughs> it raises questions too. So uh, let me, with all this stuff, obviously like we could just keep going on, on the thing you said, but I do want to grab some interesting quotes from the, the manuscript you sent me, even though it'll sound okay. like I'm just bouncing around. So let me just go ahead and read this excerpt and then have you respond um I'm give you i a had a real problem figuring out how to put the four chapters in order so you mm -hmm. bouncing around is normal for me like <laughs> okay. <I'd... laughs> yeah okay so this is uh this will be your prompt all right so you say profit in the military science looks like life and infrastructure intact upon completion exceptions to that norm should look like the least amount of death and the destruction possible with the skin in the game to keep that accounted for preferably to an insurable extent when your military has a bottomless budget the amount of Muda, is that what I want to say? Possible is a horrific... Right, the Japanese word for waste. Okay. Is a horrific revelation. Insured and accountable humans without legal immunity can mitigate many of the domestic and foreign policy issues we are relying on legislatures to solve today. So I know a bit about your, you know, your views on things. So, but can you just unpack that a little bit? Um, the legislature is a philosophy the end. It's not an opinion. It's a philosophy. And then it turns into a methodology. At which point, whatever intent has, where, where your original intent, where everybody's eighth grade civics starts, where it ends up are obviously not the same, same place. So if you think that a politician can choose the mission, you are wrong. You are wrong. I don't, I don't care about your opinion. You don't understand that if the military is going to go on a mission, the most competent human being has to be in, put at the head of that operation, and it has to be possible. When you send David Petraeus over to Iraq to perform an act of military science, he has to be given a location. He has to go secure it. He has to perform the task, and he has to leave. When you give that same mission to a politician, it doesn't have any of the components of a military mission. It has the components of a missionary mission. Okay, we are over there to spread the good word of our legislature's intent in foreign policy, and we're going to do so with a Rube Goldbergian act of glory. That's not how any of that works. 
you have to know who you're going or what you're going to take because military science is three-dimensional space. It's a budget. It's a, it's a place. It's a grid coordinate. We're going to go to there. We're going to do the thing, and we're going to come back. And in that process, we need to, like any other business, we need to ensure that we are on a minimum viable product because, in the theory, the American taxpayer is on the hook. So we as as warriors have to be responsible with our budget. Well, some of that budget is lives. So the real issue here is when you take the budgetary awareness away, you you stop. the 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 human life becomes a value statement instead of a cost. And, and nobody says, "Oh, well, we can't measure human lives in cost." I, I guarantee it's going to be measured in cost. Four hundred fifty thousand for every dead one. I don't care who likes this talk. This is how it functions, and you will now be instructed. This is warrior mouth. I don't care if you don't like three-dimensional space. I get it. The second law of thermodynamics says us all going uphill until the day we die. We can take turns making each other go up a steeper hill or not. So there's no point in the steep hill, and there's really just a point in we should be thinking about minimum viable product. Um, Ike knew his budget. Ike knew his budget because his steel was finite. And every, even if you wanted to say he had lots of dollars to pay off Americans to work for him and work in dollars, that's fine. But he didn't have infinite buckets of steel. So he couldn't have as many ships and as many tanks as he wanted. He couldn't have as many aircraft as he wanted. He had to, he had to plan ahead. And the farther you plan ahead, the better off you are. So a lot of this, I bring in Scrum and I bring in PMP and MDMP and Kanban. And you have to be, you know, you have to understand your logistical supply train and you're not operating on a philosophy. And anybody who thinks this is bullshit, Jeff, Jeff Bezos operates about two years ahead of everyone else. Today he got up and he's dealing with his 2022 issues and, and his infrastructure and his long-term planning. So this is kind of where you, you take a two-year philosophy I don't care about your philosophy. Your philosophy could be dead by the end of the week. You have to set your machine up so that it looks like Jeff Bezos. Yes, he had government help. But the focus here is individual understanding can be brought up to the Jeff Bezos level. But most of those people don't have a real need for two years worth of plan. Two years of articulate business planning isn't everybody, but everybody needs two months. Mm -hmm. So it really... Be, it, the, the, the long and the short is your logistical supply train and your intellectual supply train function exactly the same. When you start losing fidelity, you start losing. So you have to maintain your understanding of how all these concepts actually work. The concept of zero when the, when the chow is supposed to arrive is no chow arriving. Chow truck didn't get here. In a military science, I might have to find a chow truck. I might have lost people. I might have lost vehicles. I don't know. It's not someone's late. It's our machine is not apparently functioning like it's supposed to. There's not hope. There's calling this place that they were supposed they were supposed to be here five minutes ago. Did they leave? Yes. Okay. I'm not going to sweat it for another half hour, but in a half an hour I call them back. Hey, what time did they leave? Are you certain? Because we don't have them. After an hour, that's it. We're not, and that depends on distance. If, if it's only a half an hour trip and you're and you're off by 10 minutes, we're looking. If it's a three hour trip and you're off by 30 minutes, we're looking. So you have to figure out, this is not ideology. I am not gonna wait. I am not gonna hope. I am not gonna vote and hope that the person who got my vote is gonna help me out. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna understand my enterprise. And, and everybody gets lost in politics. Half the book is about psychological warfare. 
really argumentation and not losing your mind. Right. Okay. I do want to return to the psychological warfare stuff because that is, that does seem to be a central theme, but let me just circle back here to this because it sounds like you're, well, it's not sound like you are contradicting what is a central tenet of let's say Western, what are called democracies. And so let me, let me Mm -hmm. read it. There's a different excerpt here that makes the same point. And then I just want to get, get more from you on this. So you, you had quoted in this new section that I'm reading from, you had quoted Kissinger who said, military men are dumb animals. And you said, actually, you know, he's correct insofar as he's going there. And then you say this, so I'll just read another excerpt. The Germain battlefield is no longer physical. It crossed into the finance world in the early 20th century with the creation of the global currency reserve. The supply train of all the warriors was then controlled by others. By the time Kissinger was mouthing off, it had moved into the legislatures. Now it belongs to private interests that control the legislatures that control the warriors. The lawyers approved the JDAMs being dropped, the GDAM being dropped, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the warriors have been reduced to the piss boys of the political legal class. Don't have any sympathy for this. We were deceived and that lesson needed to be learned again, apparently. And then this is the part that, like I say, contradicts what I think most people think is a central tenet of our modern life and how the government and military should operate. The pleas to moderation that dictate the warriors should be controlled by politicians do not hold water or stand the test of time. It takes humans with no stake in anything other than success to keep an eye on each other. The rubric is obvious competency, not talking. All right, so just for the benefit of the listener, in case they weren't tracking me, what I'm talking about there is, you know, there's a famous scene in, in Dr. Strangelove when uh, was General Ripper's talking to uh, Mandrake and he says, you know, I think it was a Clemenceau famously said that war is too important to be left to the generals. But now with, you know, modern hydrogen bombs and war is too important to be left to the politicians and they're like clearly they're trying to tell the viewer this guy's crazy no you don't want war left to the generals because they're too they're too worse in other words the idea is you want the political class that supposedly represents the people to think about okay we could try diplomacy we could try embargoes we could try or we could try war and then once the political process decides we're okay now we're going to use violence to try to solve this problem that's when you bring the generals in, but you wouldn't let the generals make the decision. Do we go to war or not? Because they're not competent to do that. So that's the the framework. And are you challenging that? Or are you saying something different? Um, I would say that if any point your decision-making process is being made, if your morals and your, you're involved in a process like being in the military and your morals are now going to be dictated by another human, you need to be ready to say no. However, if you are not competent, you don't know when to say no. I was in Iraq. Everyone else was in Iraq. We were all asking ourselves questions like, why are we here? What is the point? I know what we were told, but there's a big difference between we are here with a purpose and an ability to execute, and we appear to be here with a purpose to to execute, but we're really not seeing the terms and conditions we would need. When you're fighting an insurgency, the enemy is everywhere, nowhere. You have to... It, it doesn't really work. It doesn't really work. So when you let a politician choose the mission, you end up with with warriors who didn't know what they were doing in a place because they followed orders. So the generals represent a similar choke point if they have motivations like the politicians. 
So I don't hate on someone being in charge of a military operation. Absolutely not. That you, you need someone. However, that the, the chain of command should of that should look pragmatic. When it comes looking forward to who says who goes on the mission or not, everyone needs the individual right to refuse, which is not given in the military. You are it, it's one of those things. And because, you know, you're, you're 15 years in the military before you start asking these kinds of questions and you have to go to a dumb war to figure it out. So when you're talking about how does one lose their agency, it's again, it's every one of the 182 ways to include contractual obligation. So the concept of the warrior has been all ushered into the War Department and then we're told to obey and then the politicians are in charge. And I'm saying... When, my first book breaks apart how to rip apart the rip rip apart the politicians. This is never mind ripping apart the politicians. If you're an incompetent warrior, a competent politician will rip you apart anyway. So I go in the face of everyone was told that you cannot have generals in charge of your military. Okay. The problem is you really can't have an untrusted hierarchy in charge of your military. It doesn't matter if they're political. It doesn't matter if they're generals. You cannot afford that rabbit, that machine to be rabbit. So if you put, if there, if everyone follows orders and they don't have the individual right of refusal, then anything you put at the top has to, you go back to looking for an angel to be in charge. And then the beautiful part is amongst warriors, there aren't any angels. We don't give a shit. There aren't any angels. We are willing to be the bad guy. Okay, we're going to go do the thing. I know how to do the thing. Why are we doing the thing? Who said we're going over there? No, no, none of that. That's not why we do this. And then you find out we're on offense. So then I end up going into when goods and services don't cross borders. Soldiers will. At which point I go back to Kissinger. Military men are dumb animals, and we are so far behind in our planning and our tactics and our strategy and our education and our reading level, that aptitude, that ineptitude is the de facto position for all of us. We're not even on the right battlefield. Going to Iraq to try to clean up a problem does not help because the problem is in D.C. And I could call it sinister. I could call it a communication problem. But the warrior's mission and the warriors are off on ignorance. We're off on ignorance. Most people can't explain it. They can rationalize it. They can tell you about their beliefs. So if we don't have the right to refuse, we will be at, the right to refusal causes a problem for we definitely have a war machine. The problem is we don't definitely need a war machine. We definitely need competent warriors regardless. So I would much rather get everybody, you know, get mutiny in everyone's molars and say, it's time for everyone to understand that no is the de facto answer. And when we go to war, it's the opposite, you know, 185 steps in the voting process and every one of them is predatory. You flip this around. We got 185 steps to this mission. And if at any point any one of them becomes dumb, maybe we're not doing it right. Maybe it's time to get our shit together, reexamine the enterprise. Killing Saddam Hussein is one thing. Foreign policy in Iraq is another. So just kind of. Dragging it back to if we are not competent to tell a politician no, if we're not competent to display it to each other, then it doesn't matter. We're all just it's the blind leading the blind. And it's really not that it's the contractually bound to obey and culturally programmed to 
obey the politician. The, the politician general thing is, oh, it's, oh, the theory is, the theory is you end up in less wars. Many times throughout history, when the warriors let the, let the kings go over to, to, to parlay, they'll cancel the war. They'll sit down, have a meal, they'll realize the kings are lying, and they'll, and they'll, they'll cancel the war. So every disintermediation tactic is being used against the warriors, and they all need a wake-up call because it's their job. And you, you don't get to walk around, oh, I'm in the military, and I've been here for 22 years. If you don't recognize the system as a bit of a problem, you're not that good at your job. Yeah, so you, you said an interesting thing there because you're right. The, I think for the average – I don't mean the average listener of the Bob Murphy show. I mean like the average person out there. If they – you know, they, they would – I'm sure would love – the the claim or the notion that oh yes the we we need the uh the civilian politicians to be in charge of the military you know that like that's like a, a considered a central tenet of a modern representative democracy and that distinguishes it from you know a banana republic or something um and you and you're right if you say why they would probably say something along the lines of what you just said that oh because otherwise if you look at the military in charge they'd be starting wars and so, when actually no it's it's the other way around that certainly in practice, I mean, I know just anecdotally, like lots of troops supported Ron Paul, you know, politically because they knew, okay, this guy's not just going to go around recklessly getting us involved in conflicts. And then we have to go in there and face bullets that the you know political class, they're, they're not the ones who have to suffer the consequences of shooting their mouths off. Um, so there's that element. And also too, because I, I can imagine some people, it's interesting because they can, I'm sure, agree with you like, oh, yeah, skin in the game. And certainly the generals are more competent in terms of the analysis to realize, like, is this a good uh, conflict to start here and so forth? Whereas, the you know, politicians don't have any idea. and They have different incentives, like they have to keep the voters happy and stuff like that. But I, a crucial part, and this goes back to something I read from earlier from the from your book, this latest one um, that we didn't amplify at the time. And I said, I want to just make sure you agree with how I'm going to try to uh, present this to people so they understand. Let's use an analogy. So just like if it comes to making cars, you could clearly see someone saying, like if someone said, oh, car making is too important to be left to the Ford executives, instead it should be left to the politicians. Most people would say, no, that's not correct. Leave car making to the now, does that mean you can go and just grab money from customers and give cars to them against their will? No. It, it, when you say that to, to leave car making to the executives at Ford and you know GM and whatever, you mean in the context of a system that has property rights, blah, blah, blah. And so that's why, or, or that's kind of where you're coming from because earlier, remember that quote I read where you were saying that we need a system where there's accountability and perhaps insurance. So you, so you don't want legal immunity, right? So if if the SEAL Team 6 goes over somewhere and does something that's illegal, they can't just say, well, you know, Bill Clinton ordered me to, whoever, Barack Obama ordered me to do it, so that's why, so I'm fine. You would say, no, you broke the law, you have to face the music, right? Am I tracking with you? So you're, when you say yep. leave it to the general, you mean embedded in a system where there's accountability and not legal immunity. And this is where I go back to competency being the real problem. And then again, we go back to politicians being the real problem. I don't have any problem with women in the military. There are some Amazons who belong there. And then there are a bunch of women in it for the college money. And it's not women. It's males do that, too. 
So you have a problem in the military that you, the politicians have now incentivized people through what I will call perverse incentives to go join the military and be obedient. So the obedience gets kind of the politician what they need, but it doesn't get the individual what they need. It usually gets them PTSD or confused or injured, some kind of bullshit. So they don't really understand. You have to, it's going to be competent. I think uh, there's there's a lot of rumor now. I've actually seen some video of the human trafficking videos in several countries. Uh, Poland had human slaughterhouses, human torture chambers set up in connexes. There's video. So these cops go in and they're they're rooting this place out and they're showing you a competent predator doesn't care about your politicians. It knows how to do stuff out in the countryside. Your legislature, your eighth grade civics class, those people don't care about you. They are going to commit an act of military science that will look like kidnapping and human trafficking. They don't care about you. So I really get eighth grade civics public school kids telling me, hey, I know how this works. No, you don't. That's all. It's easier to lie to someone than it is to convince them they've been fooled. So at this point, the warriors have to be so far on the, on the um, defense that when SEAL Team 6 decides it's time to go for a mission, they have two copies. Here's the copy of my exculpatory evidence that stays here. I have already procured it. If I have to shoot this human, it's for this reason. And they put it. So that basically means the warriors have to be lawyers. They have to know what warrior and cop. I need to go and get my exculpatory evidence. I need to then plan a mission after I have my evidence, not suspicions. I don't need a warrant because I'm a warrior. I don't need to pretend that there is crime in the name of financial regulation. I don't need to pretend that the banking system or the drug enforcement policy creates criminals. I got exculpatory evidence of a child rapist. I'm going to get it. If it resists, it might not come back. The end. And when I have my exculpatory evidence up front, I'm almost certain that I just make a second copy and hand it to my insurer because now I'm going to go and behave as a wild animal on the face of this earth. I have exculpatory evidence for another one. I'm going to go, I'm going to go and behave in a manner that that animal behaves like a human predator. I'm going to show up out of the blue. I'm going to snatch it out of its room. I'm going to put it in flex cuffs and I'm going to take it away. I am not going to observe the nap. I am going to remove a predator because I already know it's a predator. I'm not going to take someone else's word for it. And this is, I don't care who you are, cop, lawyer, judge, anybody who thinks you're in the system. If you don't procure your own evidence and then go get that animal, you're relying on trust in between these two points. And guess what happens? Legal immunity shows up. A policeman union shows up. Politicians defending and throwing rocks at the cops. It doesn't really matter. We get to then play politics with perception, not with germane details of the enterprise. Competent predators kill all the libertarians because they're too busy talking. I love the libertarians. I'm on their side. They are going to capitulate. You will perform the task in, in accordance with the laws of thermodynamics that do not allow predators in, 
or you will have predators. If you think this is my opinion, you're wrong. I'm not advocating for predation. I'm saying if you don't lock your doors and claim I keep getting broken into, you're not even doing the basics. And then when you lock your doors and you keep getting broken into, you have a moat and then you end up with claymores and then you end up with a Federal Reserve system and you're losing your money anyway. So it's not I have to defend my physical person that lots of people have figured out to keep you on a monetary treadmill and I don't have to invade your house. I just keep you going to work. I tell you full employment is good for you. Full employment is better for Jerome Powell than it is for me. It definitely is better for Jerome Powell than it is for me. So everybody wants to figure out their own place. And we are all in a battlefield right now. I don't care what anybody says. Psychological warfare and COVID-19 have a Venn diagram so big, it looks like the eye of Sauron. Okay? That's what that looks like. It's, it's the common cold is of a size, a virus that everyone had accepted for 100 years, we cannot prevent the common cold. The coronavirus is the same vector. It is unpreventable on scale. If you have individual medical stuff, you can retreat, you could take certain precautions, but if you don't have an individual medical event and you're wearing a t-shirt over your face, you are preventing the common cold now any more than you were three years ago. And if you think brand naming a coronavirus suddenly changes the rules of that game. You're wrong. You're wrong. I don't have to argue with these people. It's you're wrong. Microbiology doesn't do that. You can half, I could take PCRA tests and all they do is come back with dead virus in your system. I can, I can tell everyone who tested positive for a coronavirus that they have COVID-19. I can mark everyone with a comorbidity as a COVID-19 death. And it takes nine months and the CDC basically comes out and says, oh yeah, Nine out of 10 that were marked as COVID had some kind of comorbidity. So at a certain point, this isn't science, it's propaganda. And where do you find COVID? On the internet. You go out in the real world and you look for it. If you don't have a television, you might not even know COVID-19 exists. You would not bump into it like people would bump into the Spanish flu 100 years ago. You, you won't find it. You'll find some human being with a cloth mask on more than willing to tell you to get behind one because the cooties are afoot. And we all have to do the same thing or it won't be the same. Mm -hmm. Psychological warfare as it's happening. Nobody wants to believe it. They want, I want to trust my government source. So there's a lot you do talk about psychological warfare in the book. Why don't we, what do you mean by that term? Any when you and I are talking about a business, we, it's best to describe a business. We are, we have a cash flow. This is how we get it. This is our, this is how we go through 90 days and produce a quarterly revenue statement. This is how we do it. If you, any part of that process that is out of tolerance will cause that business to go defunct. So psychological warfare is looking at this other human being's process and applying something to it that will make it break. And then convince that human being that their broken process wasn't worth their time, is worth repeating, is the one true way, and you're just not doing it right. So at a certain point, you're either everything is in a gymnasium. You can have as many complex pieces in your Rube Goldberg machine as you want. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It's not an opinion anymore. 
So you really are looking for these people who are so focused on enterprise environment factors that they don't talk philosophy very often. They understand why they're doing it because the end state is a, is a net positive, but they recognize there's a bunch of work between here and there, and I have to go do it. And if I don't do it incompetently, it won't be done right, and there'll be nobody to blame but me. And all the energy and resources I use will be wasted if I don't do this properly. When you don't have any skin in the game, what do you get? You get voters in mass pretending that their collective will is what will make the War Department work. No, it won't. Civilians don't know what the warriors do for a living. If you think I'm being condescending, I don't care. I'm explaining it to you. You have to go and do it or it's not done. There is no lawyer to call. There is no insurance. There, there is Hobbesian state of success or failure. And most people refuse to engage in the topics on that way. They want to know. They don't understand the process. I want a political excuse to not know what I'm doing. I need an excuse. I don't need displayed competency because I have my vote. And then what do you get? You get a whole group of people in one spot pretending to be subject matter experts for roads, defense, domestic and foreign policy, which is just word jargon for statutes we're going to enforce here or abroad. All of these people are nuclear weapons. How many things do we have to have in a legislature before we look at that and say there's no way that group of people has the correct amount of subject matter experts to execute any of those tasks, especially like that? I wrote a whole book on it because I'm certain that the legislature is a waste of time and it's filled with non-subject matter experts that it, it are placed there through a voting process, which is nothing but uh, a plea to popularity. The concept of electing someone to, to make them do a task has nothing to do with whether or not they're competent. So your election can yield absolute garbage, but you'll be convinced it's the one true way to do it. The absolute garbage goes to the central control point of all of the things. They don't know how to operate any of it. And then it breaks and everyone's like, oh, it broke. Yeah, I, I'm sure we mentioned this the last time you were on the show when we were talking about, you know, your other ideas with privatizing uh, the leg legislature that in, in other contexts, like for example, if we were going to have an election to determine who my babysitter was going to be or who was going to change my brakes on my car, that would be terrifying. Like if I had to, you know, if we were going to have a vote, you know, there was going to be different mechanics running for the job. And then whoever got the vote, I had no say in the matter individually. Like I could cast the vote, you know, I, I would have my vote would count just as much as anybody else's. But the point is the whole town gets to vote on who changes the brakes in my car. That would be terrifying. Like, uh, you know, I, I might not drive again, you know, depending on who the person was. So you can see how in, in lots of areas, democratic voting is a terrible system. And yet that is how we determine, you know, who gets to technically start wars and things like that. So, it, and I guess obviously the the response is, well, it's because those types of decisions are, you know, public ones and how else are you going to do it as opposed to like your breaks or, you know, something about you individually. So your example is a very good example of how the actual process gets adulterated by dumb philosophy that's been installed in the process. However, if you want to install the psychological warfare facet that everybody gets to lose their mind over, we lower the threshold on what we're going to argue about, not from method A and method B, right down to I'm one of the people who gets to watch your kid. And everyone says, 
He's not going to hurt your kid, Bob. He's clearly okay. I'm going to teach your kid about guns, Bob. You're the pacifist. Here's the warrior babysitting your kids. It's not just your kid is going to have a military problem where I'm going to show up and hurt that little dude. It's not that. I'm going to show up and not do your particular, what you would like to see done when I'm gone because the process now yields me. Even though your kid is safe, he's not necessarily going to get the babysitting you might be inclined to give him. Why is that? Because the process was put together in a manner to strip you of your agency. It's, it's going to yield a controlled result so that all I have to do is make sure that I own the Democrat and the Republican, and then we'll, and then we'll have a chance. That, or I'm sorry, I own the Democrat, I own the Republican, I tell all the voters they have a chance. But in reality, the system was owned from begin with. And this is the George Herbert Walker Bush, Bill Clinton, Ross Perot example, okay? Both the Bushes and the Clintons were owned in that election, and every one of us was having a debate like Ross Perot was a debate. No, he wasn't. None of us were getting a debate, okay? People who believe the New York Times in the 80s and the 90s have bad judgment. They don't want to admit that their judgment was askew for 20 years. They want to say that the New York Times used to be a good idea because they didn't know what a bad idea looked like. George Bush and Bill Clinton stood on a stage and pretended to be opposites and everybody fell for the show. I don't care who won the election. The guy who was going to help was intentionally removed mathematically mm-hmm. by splitting that vote amongst two thirds of known goods. So I don't care about voter opinion. I make fun of voters. They don't know what they're doing. I, how, I don't even talk to them anymore. I try, The only ones I talk to are the ones in my family. And I just remind them, no amount of voting makes me go away and I'm in your face. I tell that to my family. I'm right here. You can't vote me away. So what's, what is your next plan? So, and that's where this comes down to. You cannot take someone's song and dance as a method. Politics is war by other means. When you focus on the methodology, you might find a military solution to the problem, like Walter Block knows how to do. But if you don't look at that and you want to talk philosophy, man, philosophy argument never ends in the political sphere is a prime example of that since JFK died. Mm-hmm doesn't have to make sense. It just has to keep going forward. It's funny you bring up the Ross Perot thing because I was young enough. I mean, I was, so I was following politics at that time, but I was still, you know, now that I think back to my worldview, pretty naive. And I remember what they did with that. If you remember like Perot, he had, it, w- it was like Admiral Stockdale was like his VP choice. And yeah. And they just, the media painted him, you know, so I remember like Phil Hartman on Saturday Night Live was doing the, who am I, oh, 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 you know, and they made it look like he was just yep. a raving lunatic and stuff, as opposed to, you know, Al Gore and uh, who would it have been, Dan Quayle, I guess, would have been the analog. So, I mean, it's, it was interesting how yep. they did that and this me you know, and Dana Carvey, you know, and I like Saturday Night Live and I like these, but I'm just saying, I just remember this stuff and Dana, you know, doing his impressions of Ross Perot, like it was all a big joke. And I remember too, when Ross Perot, like he dropped out and then he came back and he was saying how the Republicans were threatening him behind the scenes that they were going to mess with his daughter's wedding. And I was so naive at the time. I actually thought, oh, come on, they're not going to mess with your daughter's wedding. You know, when there's an election, it's state. <laughs> it's like, like, now I think, oh yeah, they would, they would kill people, you know, but it's, it is funny right. just how that was. 
In other words, like just totally like every all Americans were told by the serious people, don't consider this third party guy. He's not serious. It's either Clinton or Bush. But in, in there, you choose. We're giving you this huge choice. Until 2016, Ross Perot was the only real genuine threat that, to the system. And that was because he could be seen by enough people to raise questions. A long time ago, you couldn't get everyone on the ballot in all 50 states. So they were a local problem. They were never given a national venue. And when you get a salute, oh, you know what? I'm going to take that back. Ron Paul was basically not allowed on the stage. I understand he was there. I understand he got to say some stuff. But then every poll that had him in it was gone. You know, Ron Paul, funny he was missing. Even John Stewart pointed out how well Mm -hmm. Ron Paul did the one year. And then let's just not mention him. So in Hollywood, you have these people who really help the system. And then you have guys like John Stewart. They tend to be more classical liberal, but they will ask questions that are not supposed to be asked. Like, what, what is this Ron Paul guy? So at a certain point, even though they're, you know, networking is a real thing. I have not, since the COVID-19 thing, I had a job. It was getting done because of COVID. I left. I am not going to seek out a mask wearing venue to earn money. I'm not doing it. I don't care. I will go work with adults. I am not going to work in this environment. And everyone else is looking for a job too. So you got to make this. You, everyone's got to make, I kind of forget where I was going with that. You kind of, you kind of make your own luck. And right now it's competency. I was on parole. Parole was in danger. Parole was in danger, but be, but he was competent. So when we actually start seeing, what does the solution look like? It looks like Ron Paul and the system will attack it. Like an immuno reaction. Like, think about psychological warfare as being the state we were born in. I'm, here's a soft claim to organizationally make it out. When the electricity hit the population and, and Orson Welles became a thing, from then on, we've all been living in an echo chamber of propaganda. It's the stuff we tell each other through our own ignorance, like, you know, Ross Perot is a third party choice and it's a waste of a vote. And every other philosophical argument that could be made to not vote Perot, even though he's he's one of the, the, the obvious solutions to that problem. Ron Paul, he's too effective. You can't shoot him because then you make him a martyr. You can't put him up in front of everybody because he teaches people. As part of the process, and a lot of people don't teach as part of the process, the army teaching part of the process is it's like job one. It's the thing you it's reflexive. We give our intellectual property away because I don't give a shit about my philosophy. I'm giving you a method. You go do this thing over here. This is a method. The philosophy is I'm I outrank you and I send you over there. But we really all kind of agreed to it. So I got my portion. You got your portion. The philosophy doesn't go to work a lot. The bureaucracy doesn't go to work a lot. It's the, it's the people that do the work. And that is done by competency. And it's done by people who know how. And Americans are, they've been, every competent human being they've been told is allergic to it. They're allergic to good news like Ron Paul or Ross Perot. They're, it's very strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is funny how Americans will lament about how awful the political class is. Like, you know, in, in polls about who do you trust the most, you know, it's like used car dealers, lawyers, and politicians are always dead last. And yet 
they also, when a third party candidate comes along, like you say, it's just, oh, you're wasting your vote. And, you know, it's like, well, wait a minute, but didn't you just tell us for the last three and a half years that the two candidates are awful and you wish you had some serious choice, you know, so it is funny how people, uh, you know, get, you fall into that, that mindset. Okay. Let me change gears. A big part of this book, you focus on the concept of zero. Like you literally have a, a section here, you know, labeled concept of zero and you start out saying this zero in three dimensional space is nothing. It's not an empty bucket. It's no bucket, no anything that should be said that, sorry, no anything that should be in said non-bucket. The Hobbesian state of nope, a very empty emptiness. In a computer, it is represented by the digit zero. This is an illusion. A 256-bit system is zero through 255, not one through 256 plus nothing, as it would be if you were counting eggs. There's no egg zero. The machine has no concept of nothing. It has an affirmative input of the digit zero, and it will interpret that as it was coded to. And then we just took two more sentences here that I think help drive the point home. There are no quantities equal to or less than zero in reality. Even if you are waiting for six tacos, you do not have negative six tacos. You have zero tacos. Okay, so what are you, why are you focusing so much on that? Like, geez, this seems like an odd thing to have in a book about the art of war in 2020. Why are you spending time focusing or reflecting on the nature of zero? Because philosophy is nothing. Philosophy goes on between your right and your left ear. Everything else is three-dimensional space. It's atmosphere, it's objects, it's between us. Everything between us is measurable, right down to the air we're breathing. It's atmosphere. If you took the atmosphere out of the space between us, we would choke to death. It's not that there's nothing there. There's stuff there. In between your head, in your primate, there's a brain. We're like primates with intracranial cloud storage. Just because your intracranial cloud storage can conceive of something does not mean you could produce that in the parking lot. So a lot of people don't really, like when I'm describing a process, it should look like an Ikea diagram. If I skip any steps, you might not know how to do the thing I was describing. If I describe the Ikea diagram through a postmodernistic lens of my God, of my cultural training, of my complete ignorance of said process. All of them are doomed to failure simply because I'm not describing what's going on. I, here's, I'm not saying it's doomed to failure. Uh, let me say, if I know what I'm discussing and I'm describing it openly, I'm not trying to trick you. If you don't know what I'm trying to describe, and you are susceptible to both the fraud of my ignorance and my fraud. So we have to really boil this down to, if you don't understand that you are about to receive nothing or you're going to get an assignment, it's going to wear you out for two or three hours and you're not going to get paid for it, you better have an understanding of what was just said. Why am I engaging? We've done lots and lots of work, hours of work that we never got paid for. Okay, that's fine. But when you have a preferred outcome of pay, and this process does not yield a check. If you don't know that up front and you're going to do a bunch of work and then you're not getting your money, you have been defrauded. If I described it to you like a dummy and neither one of us got paid and we're both dumb, who's at fault? Both. You were ignorant of me and I was ignorant of the thing you did. So the ignorance always drags somebody in a hole and then I could start attaching sinister people to dumb all day long. So you have to fix your military science problem. You set up a process that has two outcomes. 
the proper outcome or game over, insert quarter, try again. That's what blockchains do. So that's kind of where I get down to when you understand a method that will only perform your task or tell you to insert another quarter because you failed, it becomes a learning experience and something you could run away from. It doesn't show up in your paycheck and become mandatory. And if you don't figure it out, it becomes someone else's lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where you will be defrauded in the process because of your own philosophy. If I could talk you into paying for my house, I'm a winner. Yeah. Okay. The Why don't we hit one more big topic here? I think that's a good place to conclude mm-hmm. with. So let me read some of the context and then I'll have you elaborate as the pattern is that we're doing here. So you're saying here, uh, and this is a thing that you repeat a few times in the, in the manuscript. So you say, so at best, other humans will give you 7% of information you can use with 38% more if their tone is decipherable and truthful. Oh, actually, let me back up because without knowing the context, people don't know what you mean. So you, you are saying how in communication, only 7% is verbal and then 30% is from, is, is what? The tone or is that the 55%? I'm getting mixed up as to, I don't have that right in front of me. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. Okay. The tonality is 38%. Yep. The words are seven. Okay. And then 50, 55% is the dance you do, you know, your physical yeah, mannerisms and the context yeah, yeah, right. in which. Okay, gotcha. Right. So, and so 55% is nonverbal, 45% is verbal, but even of the verbal, uh, you know, total relative to the whole, 38% is, is just your tone. So you're saying, yes, it's hearing the auditory, but it's not uncoding the actual words being spoken. It's more the way they say it. And so, and, and I, obviously people who have close relationships with others, a lot of times, if somebody says something, you, you know, and you told your, if you were complaining about to somebody else, you can't believe this person said, it wouldn't be the words they said. Just, yeah, but you had to hear the way they said it. Yeah. <laughs> like I know what they meant when they said it that way. And so it is, I, I totally get what you're saying there. So anyway, that's the context. And so now let me go back to this quote. So at best, other humans will give you 7% of information you can use with 38% more if their tone is decipherable and truthful. Applying this rubric, you'll learn to appreciate honest humans very quickly. This is the best explanation of psychological warfare that I know of. To that end, it's what I see humans practice every day. The concept is very basic, but it has profound implications on your day-to-day communications with others. That, that, that You talk a little bit about neurolinguistics. And then I want to get, this is the part that I, was interesting to me in particular. It seems that ancient peoples called this white magic or enchantment. I wish I was kidding. Wizardry is the art of bullshit. How much have we learned since the dark ages or are we still in them? And so I don't know if Donnie, you're familiar, but Owen Benjamin, you know, the the comedian that he's been on Dave Smith's show a few times. He has Mm -hmm. this thing where he goes through and says how the, the, like the politicians where in the media, they are, they're casting spells and what a good comedian can do is break the spell, like by pointing it out and then doing mm-hmm. something funny. And it gets the audience to, you know, the way he talks about it is that they, the other, the ruling class has cast a spell. And then the good, his role as a good comedian is to break the spell. And so he's, he's clearly, you know, so it's interesting. You, you both of you kind of grabbed on that metaphor to, to talk about what's going on. So do, do you want to respond to that? Okay. So this any science that you do not understand could intelligently be referred to as magic. I'm just trying to give the word a little bit of definition because I'm not telling you there are goblins and fairies. I am telling you that magic 
is an unknown technology to you. Someone shoots a laser at you and you are in the 1600s, you might just refer to it as magic. It makes my friends burn into fire. Mm -hmm. They might not have the articulation for it. So magic, never mind. It's science. Neurolinguistics is a thing and endocrinology is a thing. Neurolinguistics is white magic and endocrinology is black magic. That's how they would have referred, that's how unsophisticated human beings that don't really understand the science could intelligently describe it and accurately without making up terms. So when you do this verbally, I will call it enchantment. You can call it a lie, but it's not necessarily a lie because if somebody's really good, if so, like Uncle Bernie, he's really good at singing you the tone that makes it sound like on grandpa's lap. And then he gets you to walk down all of his nonsense. And then all of a sudden he's got to get you to go bold. So he's going to do the thing. <laughs> he's telling you what to do regardless of what's coming out of his mouth. So you can refer to it as enchantment. And in fact, it, I'm not being silly. It's no, enchantment. Right, right. Mm -hmm. It's almost like these people have an air of love about them. Okay. Now we're going to go back to the concept of zero and we're going to get hard with the terms. An enchantment is vocal. A spell is written. It's called spelling. I know that's dumb, but it's called spelling. And here's my example. You go through a military manual and there is a, a phrase and it says this page intentionally left blank. A page is not blank. That is a spell. It, it's the concept of zero packaged in an affirmative. I saw that on the paper. It was there. It says this page is blank. Pay no attention to the mere existence of this phrase. Then I will listen to other warriors conjure logic as to why that is that. Oh, it's an administrative reason. That's not correct. In almost every manual that I have ever seen, there are page numbers to denote what page it is. <clears throat> Some of them, army, most of the army manuals, the older ones might not, but the new ones do. They have on the right in the corner, it's what publication it is. It has the publication number. So there's this administrative block that people will then say, oh, well, this, this is, it's intentionally a blank because it's an administrative reason. No, it's not. It's, it's factually incorrect. It's ink on paper that says there is no ink on this paper. And it's a spell. And if you will now start attaching ignorant points of logic as to why this is here, you're really just training yourself to believe in zero and accept zero as a functioning answer. And all, that's not belief, that's real. But then you're taught to attach logic to it. Don't attach logic to something that's not there. Guess what? It's there. It's there. You're going to look at it. Their ink was expended. So you're stuck with this concept of, I think I know why this is here, but it's not. There it is. That is my example of what a spell is. I have a I have a podcast. Uh, it's called Total War, and I, I rip apart a document. The document is called The Secret Covenant, and it says right on it, none of this information should be written down. Hello? Mm -hmm. How am I reading a document that's supposed to be keeping secrets, especially when the document says this isn't supposed to be written down? They're trying to get me to believe in something. In something. So it, that's it, it's disintermediation. You have this idea in your head. You think you know how it works in real life, and now you're using zero as a root in logic, and you can come up whatever you want. So just to 
amplify some hundred oh, percent. Let me let me close. A hundred percent in agreement with Owen. Uh, Bernie Sanders is a wizard or an enchanter. I am a disenchanter. I don't give a. Shit. I will tell you how it works, and then you will have to deny me. You will have to deny science because I'm not in this for my person. I'm not in this for my personality. I don't care about my intracranial cloud storage. As soon as I see something can happen in a way I didn't know, I just write that one down. Hey, there's three ways to do that one. I only know it two. Okay, can you elaborate? You said a minute ago, neurolinguistics is white magic and endocrinology is black magic. Did I get that right? Mm -hmm. So what do you, for one yeah. thing, so people might not know what those terms, I don't mean the white and black magic, I mean... What's neurolinguistics oh, yeah. and what's endocrinology? Neurolinguistics is how your brain accepts speech. So you can, there, there's data science. Okay, in a vacuum, you don't get any sound going in your ears. You require atmosphere for sound to travel. It's an enterprise environment factor. You also die in a vacuum. So if I place you in a vacuum for the purpose of sound not getting to you, it's going to work. It's going to work. You're not going to hear me while you're dying. So the, the neurolinguistics portion is you have to accept that this is a science that you and I communicate to each other. Uh, and let's, let's kind of give a bit of an abstract. If you put a thousand monkeys in a room banging on typewriters, how long does it take for them to bang out John 316, right? It takes a lot less time for monkeys to scream John 316 because monkeys don't communicate with typewriters. They communicate verbally. So eventually, that thousand monkeys will come upon a verbal solution far faster than they will with their hands because they don't know how to type. So you and I have to deal with the fact that neurolinguistics works way better than typing, except typing is this really high fidelity. That last 7% of the communication is technically all you really need. So that the 7% the of communication that typing provides can function as 100%. What have you eliminated when you do that? You did eliminate context, which is not necessarily good. But you did eliminate the dancing human that Bernie might be trying to get you to go do the thing, and you you took the, the sound out of it. Mm -hmm. So now Bernie Sanders is, is just a script that you have to read and go, this is not convincing. You need Bernie to do the show. A lot of politicians have such an ignorant message that they need the show to actually get mm -hmm. this point across. Well, then they're going to use a teleprompter and the speechwriter. So that speechwriter is going to wordsmith you properly where they want you to go. It's not necessarily why you want to be. Then Bernie's going to focus a lot on his tone and read instead of knowing what he's talking about. I don't use a teleprompter because I'm not interested. He's trying to read the crowd, get you emotionally involved, try some tricks but I'm just trying to, here's a book. Here's how this is done. So that our motivations are different. Our methods end up being different. And Bernie is, well, I'll just make this soft claim, intentionally misunderstood because he doesn't want everybody to know what he's really saying. I have to go the other way and have to be really explicit to make sure I'm not being misrepresented because I'm trying to be transparent. Mm -hmm. Black dick is endocrinology. It is why other human beings will torture and kill a human and take the adrenochrome, the, the adrenaline and the DMT from your pineal gland. All of this will secrete out during torture and then they drink that. That's endocrinology. 
young people have stem cells in them that old people can benefit from. So when you hear that there are people, you know, there are, it's a very rare behavior, but if 7 billion people know about it, it doesn't change how rare the behavior is. So cannibalistic behavior, um, turning humans into some kind of healthcare product, it's bad, but there is a reason people do it. I'm not moralizing about cannibals. I'm telling you that if you eat human beings, there are positive and negatives, and the conversation makes people viscerally uncomfortable. I understand. It doesn't change the enterprise environment factors. When you have to deal with enterprise environment factors, if people are used to avoiding them for their, their personal assuagement, now they just engage in politics, they avoid the problem, and they remain ignorant. I will say it. People kill children, and they take healthcare products from them. That's sad, but that's reality. So it's better everybody understands the enterprise and how to prevent this as a military science, not as some kind of political solution that somebody thinks someone will enforce. It's, it's not going to work. So that's where you get this. If you take a term like neurolinguistics and you call it white magic, some people might think it's you're, you're being facetious. Well, that's how it works. Killing other people. Black magic, that's how it works. I wouldn't do it. I would not know about adrenochrome unless some feral animal killed someone else and did this. I wouldn't know, but now I know because they did. So, yeah, your mind, you're kind of like in the Harry Potter world, you know, the defense against the dark arts professor. Like, like you know, you, we need to teach you people what those bad wizards are doing out there in order for you to be, be ready and not be caught flat-footed if you encounter them. And, and here's where I go back to, if you think it's the sinister wizard you have to avoid, it's the wizard in the mirror. It's not the other wizard that's going to screw you up. It's your own incompetence going into your ear via someone else's mouth, and then you think it's a good idea, you go do the wrong dance, and then you realize that guy was a bad wizard. You got to be good enough at your wizardry so that if anybody's going to get you into the, into the nonsense, it's going to be you. And even then, I go, you want to talk about neuro-linguistic nonsense, N-O-N-C-E-S-E-N-S-E. -E -E. Nonsense is the sense of when to apply an exception. But nonsense is supposed to be not making any kind of determining sense. And here we are. We've got these nonsense is a very um, helpful skill. You know when all of the other stuff isn't going to work because of the nature of the enterprise. Oh, this is an exceptional problem. I have an exception on my hands. I have to fix it in a certain way. Be I don't fix it the way I fix everything else because it's exceptional. This is a, it's a tertiary problem, but it will blow up my main effort. So I have to solve it. But it's so different from my main effort. I don't have to commit an act of military science on the Democrat Party. I just have to bullshit them. And once I get them all into the same corner of dumb, I have them captured regardless. I win. A any state of I win is a state of you lose. And I'm not, I'm not trying to defeat everyone. I'm trying to bring everyone up to the self-defense level of an attorney that is very difficult to prosecute at, at best at, or at worst. I would like to see everybody just understand the lawyers and the politicians lie to you. And that's how the system works. But the self-defense course for it is very difficult. Mm -hmm. 
it's just difficult. It's difficult coursework. It's, it's making sure the books that you read in your first couple of years in college are not the same that you read post postdoctorate. The postdoctorate books are much harder. They're much more articulate. They're much more nuanced and they require an order of magnitude, more volume to go through the same time to go through the same book because you have to read it slower because there's more nuance. Everybody has to be able to have that reading level with their politics or they will become victims. Over. End. Military science. You will be a victim because you cannot secure the voting booth, because you cannot secure the ballot, because you cannot secure the candidate. You're going to lose. Well, I think, yeah, a lot to digest there. Uh, I think we should probably stop on that note. So, folks, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 148 for links. The book is The Art of War 2020. I'll also, folks, put links to Donnie's previous appearance on The Bob Murphy Show. It was one that people either loved or hated it. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Some people told me at the time oh. that was the best episode ever. Other people are like, who is this guy? He's talking nonsense. So it's kind of interesting. You're a provocative guest. I talk, <laughs> I talk nothing but nonsense. That's how I do it. Right. So I understand, I, I don't, like some people are incredulous. If they're honest, they won't be incredulous long. That's okay. Mm -hmm. I, I'm kind of a functioning heretic. I know that. I am not saying anything according to your eighth grade civics class, anything that's according to the war department, anything that was put out in a federal document that says everyone can go by these guys. I don't put out any of that. I put out military science. This is how to fix a problem. People tend to like their solutions, even though their solutions are problems. So, um, the book will be on my website. I've been having trouble listing it's other places. So it's definitely going to be on my website and for a limited time, it will be the only place you can get it. And then everyone will be able to email it to each other. Cause it's just a PDF. So, okay, that's it. It's just a PDF. So you could go download it and then give it to our friends. Don't worry about it. Okay, great. So I, again, folks at, at bobmurphyshow.com slash 148, obviously we'll have all the links for that. Okay. Donnie, thanks for your time and, uh, good luck out there. Thank you for having me. Okay. Talk to you later. Thanks. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.